Hello and welcome to the second series of the Marathon Bet podcast. I'm Danny Kelly. Alongside me, I'm delighted to say, as throughout the first series, the former Crystal Palace owner and chairman, Simon Jordan. Hello, Simon. Hey, Danny. Great to be back, isn't it? It's so fantastic. I'm really looking forward to this series. And we have a new theme for you. This time, in a 10-programme series, we're going to fit in the seven deadly sins. That's to leave room towards the end of the series for you, the listeners and the fans to tell us about your deadly sins of football. Essentially, each week we'll take one of the traditional seven deadly sins and see how it's applied to the events of the last few days in football, but also to the game in general. At the end of the whole series, we should have built up an absolute catalogue of real sinners and the sins we want to see expunged from our great national game. Welcome to the second series of the Marathon Bet podcast with Danny Kelly and Simon Jordan. Here's what's coming up. Furious at him because he didn't turn up to events, so I hung him out of a window by his throat. I'm really, really angry with you now because if you still had that 50 million, we're such <laughs> great mates. You could buy an island and we could go on holiday for the rest of our lives. We could have our own betting company. Absolutely. Has he any right, any right at all, to be angry about his situation? No. No other business, as I've said before, serves up crap one week and then gets people to come back the following week and buy it again. Before we get into uh, this week's big discussion about the deadly sin of anger, of wrath, let's just take some of your views. And we asked you generally out there on Twitter, at MarathonBetPod, to talk about the things that were sins in your mind going on in the game today. Some of them very serious, some of them rather daft. Andy, uh, at Comeback in Club, says, Time wasting. The clock needs taken away from the referee and independently timed from the stands. Stop the clock when the ball is out of play and then bang on 45 minutes. We're definitely going to go that route, aren't we? I think so. I think it's right as well. I used to sit and stand as a chairman going crazy about it. Alex Arn, very simple one. Socks pulled up over to cover knees. Alex, you want to get something important to worry about, mate? Yeah, I know, but it used to get on my nerves as well. It's, it's up there with snoods, isn't it? <laughs> this is from uh, Martin. Uh, you either call Gillet, Gillet or Gillet. I'm not or sure which. Them, yeah. So-called away kits being warm and there isn't a colour clash. Arsenal, Watford, Manchester City are serial offenders in the EPL, but many more are guilty. Unless the referee decides there's a clash when traditional home colours should be worn by both teams. It's about money. Yep. Finally, for these ones, don't forget, you can get in touch with us at Marathon Bet Pod, at Marathon Bet Pod on Twitter. Commentators referring to Javier Hernandez as Chicharito. What's wrong with that? That's his nickname. Yeah, but I do get annoyed by that. I used to get annoyed by... Of course you do. Deli Ali having his name on the back of his shirt. It's Deli. You know, your name is Ali. You know, I had Neil Ruddock at Palace come out one day with razor on the back of his shirt. I nearly garroted him. You haven't got enough to worry about either, then. No, not enough. What about Kun Aguero? He's got his nickname and his surname. I'm not happy with it. I think there should be a way that the players' names are represented, and it should be their surname, and that should be the consistency. And it's not about the players. Oh, I feel like being called this this week. Do as you're bloody told. Um, OK, finally, the last time I'll say this, we really want you to get involved in what we've been saying. Have your say about that each week on the Marathon Bet podcast, or responding to um, individual sins as they come up. And that same address all the time, at Marathon bet pod and each week we will read out the best most controversial or stupidest of your ideas Simon let's start with the weekend's football already the game exploding with what used to be called wrath but these days I suppose is more traditionally translated as anger we can start in East Manchester at the old Eastland Stadium the uh, Etihad with the VAR going on between Manchester City and Spurs A it changed the game but B it caused people to be going off at the deep end was it the right thing? 
and it's the VAR actually turning out to be a disaster. Well, I think the decision in its own right was the right thing. Of course, there's history in that particular game, isn't there? Because we're talking about a Champions League quarter-final, and Man City fans, you know, despite the fact they're the best team in the land, will all automatically go, well, not to us again. You know, and Pep Guardiola, the very person that was talking about handballs in that situation, is now the person that's a victim of it. So I understand the anger, and I understand the frustration at that particular time. I think the greater anger should be levied at the failings of VAR, which was to give to my mind, which was a clear and obvious penalty. I think the handball, the rule itself is where the anger should be directed at because a rule has been introduced, as we know, mm-hmm. which is Rule 12, which is basically talking about the idea that any handball inside a penalty box which leads to a goal takes away a goal. And we've spoken about this in different formats where people have tried to convince us that VAR's whole premise is to find a way to disallow a goal. Now, if that is VAR's premise, then we should be angry because football's about goals. I completely disagree. I mean, not, not with what you're saying, but with the people who say that the VAR was brought in for pretty good reasons. Of course, if you bring in such a huge change in any game, there's going to be, I'm going to say the phrase, teething troubles. We've lost Absolutely. the whole season. It's going to be, an, and there's another part of the of the sins in the game now. There's no patience whatsoever. We've had two rounds of games in no the Premier League. No planning, though, either, Dan. Nobody does anything properly. Nobody communicates properly. We knew one of the areas of anger from fans was going to be why a goal was being disallowed, what's going on in the process. We know that these football clubs, which makes me angry, I've got more money than God at times, <laughs> right? because I missed that particular boat, don't have tech in the grounds, so every single stadium visitor, and let's be clear, Football fans inside the stadia, to my mind, are more important fans outside of it. I know the scope of broadcasters' revenue is eyes on the screen, but if you have empty stadiums, you have no atmosphere. Yeah, without and these are the fans, only guys. Yeah, these are the only guys that are paying ticket prices of 150 quid, 100 quid, 50 quid, 60 quid that don't know in the stadium what's happening at the time. I personally am absolutely 100% in agreement with the rule that says if in some part of the move that leads to a goal, it hits someone's hand, you have to disallow it. Yep. It is a fundamental change in the game it because is. for the first time ever, in unintentional handball, is getting penalised. Absolutely. But, you know, these are the rules. And then I was talking to Danny Mills the other day and asked him about players know the rules, right? You know, because players get angry about these interpretations. You know, there was Jesus spitting the dummy about it at the end of the game. But players know the rules, and Danny's answer was quite sort of cynically, well, we, we know how to get around the rules, we might not necessarily know the rules, which means you know the rules when it suits you. So if the VAR got it right, do you agree? Or I mean, my view is that, you know, that the handball rule is correct. Maybe I'm eternally scarred by Thierry Henry for France yeah, against Ireland. You but... know, you look at accidental handball and it's about sometimes accidental comes into defining. It's very subjective. And I think if you're going to say any form of handball, it's better to say any form of handball and take out subjectivity. The trouble with that is then at the other end, isn't it, when it accidentally hits a defender's hand and you're giving penalties for accidental yep. You can't have that. No. Because you know what will happen. That's the Players will start of... flicking the ball at each other's hands. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that is, it makes it a double-sided coin, doesn't it? Because you're in between the devil and the blue sea in that situation. It looks unfair, but I yep. think it's right. Yep. How they can get it expressed to the fans in the stadium yep. and convince people like us watching the game that they're doing the right thing, that's a PR problem. Neil Swarbrick, he did a brilliant speech the other um, day, yes. 45 minutes on Sky where he really explained it very, very well. Not everyone sees Sky. That's already 10 days ago. They've got a PR campaign they've got to keep going with this. Absolutely. Because it was so high profile, 
the anger caused by that decision actually overshadowed the most extraordinary display of wrath, of anger, one of our seven deadly sins, during the week. You and I have been around the game a while, yep. and yet on the station we work for, Talk Sport, there was a conversation between the owner of a football yep. club, the owner of Berry, and yep. his captain, live on air, yep. where one was talking to the other, but they weren't in the room, they were on a the phone. They were indeed. The anger involved there it was i've never seen anything i've never heard anything like it no i mean i think ultimately what you got to see there was an owner representing his position in a way which i'm subject to a lot more knowledge about this so mm. i have empathy for to some extent but not a lot of tolerance for and then you have a player it was very skillfully orchestrated by the platform to bring the confrontation that was going to come and then a player getting a very strong view across about his finances and about the individual finances of the players within the club and an owner simply not having it and what you had was a boil-over for the delectation of the listening millions, absolutely. But what you got to see is the backside of football. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. I'm not of the mindset that the Wizard of Oz should be the mentality and the ball and you know, the whistles and pumps are being pulled behind the curtain. And I've always been about believing that authenticity should be brought in the public domain. But I also believe that there is a way of operating. And I understand, to some extent the way these players are operating or the way that player expressed his views, I just don't think that was the right forum for it. And the way that the owner is operating, being privy to it, I think it's a little bit scandalous because I'm across the facts because on one of our shows in a different platform, I was asked, do you know what? There's a problem here. And Steve Dale is spitting that the Football League won't you know, comply with his requests. They're putting him in an invidious position. They're compromising the future of the club. So they said to me, you know these characters. Could you help him? I said, of course I can help him. You know, I think these characters are intransigent and are difficult, but I don't think they've got the chops or the desire to take this football club out of the league. I speak to this guy. You know what, Danny? I believe everything everyone tells me until they tell me a lie, and then I never believe another word they're saying. Right. He tells me something that I find out is a half-truth, and thereon afterwards, everything becomes a half-truth. So that football club, I have to say, has been put in jeopardy by the principles of an owner. The players themselves, I've got a former player there, Neil Dans, and I know what kind of bloke Lovely he lad, is. Lovely yeah. lad, yeah. I know what kind of bloke Neil is. So those players down there, on the whole, aren't cheats. But what you had on a conversation in the middle of last week was two people that had lost their reason and were just screaming at one another about two different perspectives with no solution in the middle. I mean, what it struck me, and I don't know the background of the very owner and what he's doing, it was a reminder, though, that for players that far down the league, yeah. I might be so bold, not getting paid is actually a real issue. They've got mortgages and things. If a Premier League player misses two weeks' sure. wages from being suspended or something, it's not the end of the world. Down that end of the, of the market, different story. No, of course it is. I mean, I don't want to be crass or callous. Let's be clear, every football player in all of the professional leagues will be paid above the national average wage. Way above right? it, yes. And, and that's a reality. And, you know, football isn't an island on its own right. It likes to operate in a certain way. And people's performances are taken into consideration. Here's the rub. You can't take Barry's players' performances into consideration because they got promoted on the basis of the team being held together by good players not being looked after in an environment. That just dispels an old myth because I love getting rid of old myths. Yeah, blow them up. You know, dressing rooms in a sanctum and managers should be given more time. And this is about the myth of the idea that if it's not right at the top, it might be right at the bottom. The islands are detached at times. Yeah, often teams kick against the chaos yeah, at a club and, and do better. Charlton being another case in point. Amazing, yeah. amazing, absolutely right. 
like their owner you've once described to me, and I have to be careful of the libel laws, and lunatic yeah. is the word you use. You've got no formal medical qualifications <laughs> to say that. But the players just just got on with the gig and got themselves up the league. You know, football is a culture of excuses. So if they can, find, if they suddenly get made accountable for something, they'll find some reason for it. If they can galvanise themselves and take success, then they'll be the ones that that success was created from. If the other pl- applies, it'll be someone else's fault. That's, why That's what makes me angry at times. Uh, sorry, I didn't think we'd go very far before you found something to be angry about, to be fair to you. Which takes us to the fans. And I'm not sure, Simon, that when, you know, I, I've been following football a long time, I think they were more accepting of things. And maybe that anger was just being sublimated, just being forced down. But now the world has changed so much. You've got 24-hour radio stations that will take yep. calls about football all day and all night. You've got particularly social media where yep. everybody is a little broadcaster of one. Well, social media is a game changer. Yeah. Uh, a la yeah. podcasts. Yes, a la podcasts. Do you think how it's changed, how it's changed the way football is, the fact that the fans have a voice now, however it's expressed, and does it actually affect the way owners, managers and players go about their business? Yes and no. I mean, I think that society is part of the anger problem that we've got per se as a matter of course, and we can talk about that as well. But I think football has always been, in this country specifically, a confrontational sport. The terraces has always been an aggressive place. And I actually think it's dialed down a little bit. But what you've got now is an ability to shine a light on these things more clearly, more concisely, and highlight it, and people are aware of that. I got into the mindset at times, and I reminded myself that there will be certain sections of football fans that will never be happy and will always be angry. The problem is that you're right, so they've got all these ways of uh, directing their anger and yet football fans find it absolutely impossible to use their anger in the one way that I believe would actually ever affect a football club and that is to stop going and to stop buying the shirts and to stop buying the pies. Yes, to a point. We talked about Newcastle fans being angry about Mike Ashley and being angry about the appointment of an old manager of mine, Steve Bruce, and the boycotts. I think we've got a set of people in this country that want to have righteous indignation every single time they get an opportunity to have it. You know, people are up in arms. I'm up in arms about the fight in Saudi Arabia, but I'm not up in arms about certain aspects of it. I'm up in arms about the fact that it's got only about money and I want people to say it's only about money. But I think ultimately people do like to have a cause, do like to be angry about things. You walk down the road and people like to be angry. You can't cross a road if you're a bit near a car without someone bibbing at you and screaming and making you jump in the street. And then you become angry because they've done it to you. But by the same token... I think football has always had this at its heart. And I think society has now got a very angry set of issues. We've got a country divided by the Brexit issues and people can't talk to one another civilly. They can't turn around and say, well, I disagree with you because of these reasons. You're either a lever and you're rabid about that or you're a remainer and you're rabid about that. And I've sat and doing shows like Question Time and watched people become divisive and angry and uncommunicative and just angry. And what's extraordinary about it, and you mentioned the Brexit there, but that's an example, but it's also true in football. We're seeing it now with VAR is that people start out being having quite a lukewarm position about things, you know, and then they become intransigent. And then, and then, because they're attacked on social media, they need to defend themselves. We become more and more and more entrenched in our positions. I've seen it happen to myself about Brexit, where I was kind of a, a lukewarm Remainer. Now, of course, I'm dying in a ditch about it. You see exactly the same thing with VAR. People are going to divide up into camps and the anger. It seems to me that the more access we have to each other, the angrier we're getting. We thought it was supposed to be the see, opposite. I, see, I don't think it is, Dan. I think it's the fact that people are very brave when they've got keyboards in front of them. I think mm-hmm. they're very brave when they've got phones in their hands. And I think when it comes down to putting people on the spot, you tend to get a more 
balanced view. I can remember walking out of games as the football club owner of Crystal Palace, having spent millions of pounds on the club at the time, and you'd get beat, and people would be screaming obscenities at you walking through the players' lounge, and the following week you'd win, and you'd be taking pictures with their babies, holding them like gurning <laughs> like the mayor of Croydon. You know, And that's the way it is, because you can't have a sport like football without emotion on it, because no other business, as I've said before, serves up crap one week, and then gets people to come back the following week and buy it again. Talk to me about the players, because it strikes me that mostly players who have been kind of angry players, I'm thinking back in the day of Graham Souness, who's yeah. that snarling on Billy the Billy Bremner. A Billy Bremner, and, yeah. and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. We feel laughed at Jimmy. Jimmy Case. He's trying so hard to be angry. You know, see very little of it now on the pitch because the players are all trained to be part of a union yep. and all the rest of it. But let me ask you about a couple of issues over this weekend where anger did rear its head and also one where, I'll start with this one, where I want to know if the player has, has a right to be angry. Your own club, Wilfred Zaha, clearly wanted to leave Crystal Palace during the summer. He hasn't got his way. Now we're asking him to do his level best at a place where he clearly didn't want to be. Has he any right, any right at all to be angry about his situation? No. Wilfred Zaha signed a contract. Listen, if there's inconsistency of information, if the owner of Palace or the chairman of Palace has said to Wilfred Zaha... The great uh, Steve Parrish. Yeah. What a great man he yeah, is. Yeah, go on, go on. If Parrish has said to Wilfred Zaha... Don't get me angry, Dan. If Parrish has said to Zaha that uh, you can go at the end of next year, I've always said that contract was a five-year deal with a kicker in there that Palace protect the asset value so no one can have him off Palace and leverage Palace down, right? A year into that contract, I'm not surprised that Wilfred wants to go because Palace are not moving in a direction that looks like they're going to go anywhere near Europe. They were better last year, but always over the last three or four years, they find themselves in some relegation battle and then they pull themselves out of it and then they flatter their position by the end of the season by pulling off three or four wins at the end so of the season. So they're always it, mid-table, it, so it looks yeah. a bit better than it, it really was at times. And I think Wilfred has earned the right to leave, but he's a big boy. And he's being paid £130,000 a week, wow. which is an inordinate amount of money for a club of Crystal Palace's size, irrespective of the riches and wealth in the Premier League. And Wilfred has to understand that there are two sides to a coin, which is, in his instance, what he wants and what the club wants. In an ideal world, they must meet. And Palace would have sold Wilfred Zaha. And if you asked Wilfred Zaha, are you as good as Riyad Mahrez? He would have said... Of course I am. Better. Yeah, I'm probably better, Dan, as yeah. you say. So why is nobody bidding £60 million plus for you then, Wilfred? Sit back in your chair and wait until somebody does. And when somebody does, young man, then you can go. In the meantime, do as you're told, pick up your king's ransom and play like a professional because you're going to be even angrier when your season stinks this year because you've had a petted lip and people start offering 30 million quid and we definitely don't let you go. <laughs> Among all the anger at the Etihad, you had the crowd going mad about the VAR yeah. and, and, you know, and let's be fair, Manchester City were very, very unlucky not to win that football match. You had Gabriel Jesus, as you mentioned before, um, doing his nut at the end of the game. But my favourite piece of anger in it was Sergio Aguero, a top professional with 15 years behind him as a professional footballer getting the right hump with the manager coming off. Was he right? I have mixed emotions about that because I like authenticity. And if I saw one of my players as an owner looking down, right, skipping off happy as a sandboy, right, I'd think there was something wrong with that. And there's a balance to be had. And of course, Guardiola is very strident in his expectations of his players. He doesn't expect anybody to break ranks. So I like the fact that he was like, excuse me, 
excuse me? And Aguero, you know, behaving the way that he behaved and then using the opportunity for the oh. goal, which, of course, proves the greatest manager in our modern game right... Right. Yeah. To be able to whatever well, about get the technicality of the disallowed goal, he was right to bring on a new centre forward. That's my point. Yeah. And so you look at it and say, Aguero's sitting in the stands, going, you know, I've overplayed my hands here. I've yeah, overplayed completely. my hands. Oh, here's an opportunity for me to reconstitute my relationship. No, I don't think Aguero had the right to be childishly petulant and angry about the situation that his boss chose to take him off. We talked about society becoming more angry and we've talked about some of these issues that have caused wrath, one of the seven deadly sins over the weekend. I want to widen it out if I can to, we talked a little bit about Berry, but we can continue to talk about it. Bolton Wanderers is another example. The, the state they're in, they were forced to put out a team of kids yeah. who got whacked at the weekend. And let's be honest, what good does that do to any of them, by the way? I think football fans... Away from the Premier League, because the Premier League fans have got their own reasons for being angry. The famous, we must go on to the next level, and this is Codswallop, of course. Yeah. You can only do what you can do. But further down the league, we've got, to use a big word, an existential problem. Clubs are finding themselves rotating, because it's not the same a number of clubs. They find themselves rotating to the point of disaster, that they're going to actually be wiped out. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that the real anger of people like me who love Yep. Football, but particularly love the fact we have this incredible pyramid of professional, then semi-professional clubs. It's the envy of the world and ends up with the Premier League, which is the money-making yep. machine of the world. But the way that clubs, often built up, Simon, by generations of usually working-class yep. people going to those grounds on a Saturday afternoon, as it then was, are now being picked up by... Most of the owners that seem to me are pretty good, but some of them are stupid, yep. some of them are ignorant, and some of them are downright that. malevolent. Yep. They want the club to fail so they can sell the ground or whatever yep. it is. That's the cause for anger, I think, that's in the middle of English football just now. Yeah, I think so. I think this, I think the anger should be redirected in other areas as well. I think it should be redirected at the whole constitution of the Football League because the Football League isn't fit for purpose. I think there should be an element of anger at the irresponsibility and greed, which is another deadly sin that we'll talk about in other shows, we may I'm have sure. We two shows yeah, on that. <laughs> about the Premier League because whilst I'm a capitalist, I believe in meritocracy. Of course I do. But the Premier League can't just have destroyed everything. The consequence of the Premier League was never envisaged when in 1991 when David Dean was thinking about ITV and his little relationship there and ultimately Sky popped up and Alan Sugar made a fortune out of the dishes out of it all and he certainly wasn't angry then you know there was never a thought process that this would go to the level it's got but also that it would have the drip down effect that has caused the problems in these clubs because even though they were teetering and difficult in the first place and football clubs were difficult things to run you know there were the Bob Lords of the time that were the local baker, candlestick maker, cook or whatever it is that the terminology that is used and that could run these football clubs and liked being the big man in the local town. Yeah. And now you can't at any level because football clubs are being priced out of everything, not because they have to buy players, but because of the wages effect, because the average player in the Premier League is getting 100 grand a week and thinks they're underpaid, by the way. And then the average player in the championship is getting 17, 18,000 pound a week and it's unsustainable and go down and go down and go down. Right? And so you look at that and say, I was very angry when I was at the time. I remember buying Palace with a focus on the new TV deal that had been done by so-called experts in football, Keith Harris and, and David Burns, who's passed away now. So Orville. Be, or, you know, Keith Harris <laughs> is definitely Orville. And David Burns, who was the league's chief executive, Keith Harris being the chairman, signing a deal with ITV Digital, 
which was a deal with a new company that had no money, no proof of funds, and no parent company guarantee. Just to remind people, what happened was that the the non-Premier League signed a deal with ITV for millions and millions and millions. 315 million. The clubs went out and bought players and paid wages on the back of this deal, and it was a magic money tree. It was was a unicorn. Absolutely. And these are things that make you angry because of the incompetence. And you look at what goes on in a football league, and you look at the fact if the rage that gets expressed by Mel Morris or Radrazani at Leeds or other chairmen that are of a certain size in their football clubs about the construction of the Football League because the Football League is part of the heritage. The reasons why we have a Premier League is because the Football League is underpinning everything, that pyramid, and to see it being washed away, and which is going to happen, to see it being conflated probably into maybe 50 or 60 clubs rather than 72 and maybe even less because it can't sustain itself is an outrage because the game needs to be run by people that are capable of it. Right, I've asked you this question before and I still... I'm going to give you another chance to give me a satisfactory answer. Why can't football clubs below the Premier League, where we all know they've got to head for the Sunday Uplands of the Champions League or whatever their ambition is, why can't they say, there is the revenue we earn from the following 10 streams, whatever it is, there's the final figure. Anyone can read a spreadsheet, right? We must not pay our players more than 65, 75% of that. Why can't they just cut their cloth accordingly? Well, they can... But ultimately, there is a thing in football which is called emotion and ambition, and it drives you, and some people will take chances. There are lots of football clubs that are sustainable, and the losses in football aren't always cash losses. Sometimes they're depreciation on player values, and sometimes they're depreciation on assets that you've got within the confines of the football club, like the football stadium. So they're, they're sort of balance sheet losses rather than cash losses, and they're sustainable, right? And you can live with those. It's the cash losses when you're burning millions of pounds per year. Now, to answer your question, you know, it is the drip down effect the Premier League does. It provides a situation where if you don't compete, then you'll lose your fan base, you'll erode the opportunity of the club, you know there is progress available to football clubs if you build the right management team, people are impatient, people take risks, people lose their focus within the confines of football, people make bad decisions, people take educated risks like a marketing campaign. The marketing campaign in football often is, I'll buy this player, right? So you put your money into that player, and then that player becomes a fraction of what you think you've bought. And then you're in a situation where you fire a manager because the manager isn't then performing. And then you're in a situation where the new manager comes in and says, I can't work with this, so I need you to get me out of this playing squad that I've got here, get me into a new one, and I'll deliver you this. So then people take a more calculated or emotive risks than they would in other businesses by going, okay, I'll go again and I'll keep on backing it. And in the end, it catches you. This is a bad example because they're in the Premier League, but the club I support, Tottenham, Daniel Levy has got criticised for any number of things that he's done, decisions he's made. But the bottom line for me was that I can remember, under Irving Scholar, you know, a generation yeah, ago, I remember. Tottenham Hotspur, one of the most historic clubs in England, winners of European trophies, World was bus. on its way out of business. And Sugar and Venables Alan Sugar rescued it. I don't want... And Levy has, under terrible pressure often from the angry people in the stands, his number one priority, I don't know how much money he's making out of it, but it's been to say that Tottenham is run as a correct... Like a business. What was it? Mr. Byright used to run on Millets, one of those. Yeah, he's an accountant. Yeah. And he's a very good one. And Joe Lewis is a very good owner that stays in the background and doesn't get himself involved. But believe me, he will have a strong influence over what Daniel Levy is enabled to do. And Tottenham are a unique football club now. And they've got themselves into a position of being a club in ascendancy. And they've been able to finance a stadium which is beyond the realms of most people's understanding of what a stadium could be. And all of this over a period of time. And they've got elite players. So that means that what Tottenham Hotspur have done under Levy should make other clubs angry because you think 
wow, how's he found Harry Kane? How did he find Deli Alley? How did they get Harry Winks? How did they get these players economically into this football club and economic wage structures? If I'm Man United owners, although Glazers leave a lot to be desired, because if I'm the Man United fans, I'd be angry that these guys have walked into a football club and paid virtually nothing for it, got a club that's worth three billion quid, geared the club for 600 million quid, put 150 million quid of their own money in there, and Manchester United have begun to decline on all levels under that tutelage. So I'd be angry in that respect. But if I'm another football club owner, I'd be looking at my manager and my chief executive and watching Tottenham going, why can't you guys do this? Exactly. We talked about the danger that so many clubs in the lower leagues are living from hand to mouth, Simon. Under your own stewardship at Crystal Palace, they went to administration. Do you think you did right by Crystal Palace? I did. Because I backed Crystal Palace to my own detriment. And what I did was I put myself at risk. And I didn't legislate for a banking crisis in 2008, 2009. You know, I put £50 million into that football club. I put more money into that football club than anyone's put in before or after. And, you know, I look at it and say, I took risks because I believed that I had the structure in place. But the biggest risk I took was for myself. And then I owned my own responsibility by being the biggest creditor in the CVA and releasing my claims on that CVA and allowing Steve Parrish to weave a pack of lies and misrepresentations, which makes me incredibly angry today that I didn't stand my own ground. But what I did was I allowed Crystal Palace to come out of administration within about seven, eight, nine weeks of being in there at my cost. So I paid for rebuilding this football club. I put 10 years of my life, my family's ambitions and desires and my children's inheritance into the line of that football club because of my desire and my commitment and my authenticity and I paid a huge price for it. How much was that price, Simon? Because I know it'd be a piddling amount by today's by, standards. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's about but 50 by, million per purse, You lost 50 million pounds. Yeah, yeah. didn't lose it. No. You know, it wasn't like I turned around and where did I put that? No, no I took risks, Danny, with myself. It was my money. It wasn't anybody else's money. It was my money. And when the club went into administration, it was because other people had agendas. And that's what made me angry that I didn't have the courage to quite say it in my book. I didn't have the courage to call them out. I didn't have the courage to stop it in its tracks. But I knew that I had a greater responsibility. And that's why Crystal Palace has gone on. All the assets that they had at the beginning were mine. They built their playing squad on the back of Andrew Johnson's sell-on clauses, Victor Moses going somewhere else and a variety of other things, Wilfred Zaha coming out of my academy. But you know what? I put myself in the way of that, and whilst my anger will reverberate at myself, I'm life re- goes on. I'm really, really angry with you now, because if you still had that 50 million, we're such <laughs> great mates. You could buy an island, we could go on holiday for the rest of our lives. We could have our own betting company. Absolutely. <laughs> go back to anger. Have you ever lost your temper in your professional life, as, as either as when owner. you were a telephone engineer or as a, an owner of the football club? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I never sat at Palace Games because I was very engaged. At Crystal Palace at Sellers Park, certainly, you have the director's box, and I would stand on the top of the stairs because I was very graphic and very angry and very visibly vocal about the performance of the players individually and collectively. And so I used to be kicking every ball or kicking them up in the backside, metaphorically. So I always used to go into the ballroom, and we had a regular supply of new ballroom chairs because I used to pick them up and throw them across rooms because the anger and frustration that I used to get into. I'd get angry with the players. I remember getting angry with Adi Akinbai because I never wanted to sign him, angry with myself for buying him, but angry with him because he didn't turn up to a sponsor's do when he was injured for 10 weeks. I'd sent him off to see Richard Stedman, one of the most famous mm. knee surgeons in the world. I should have probably done it with a screwdriver myself, the matter use he was. And I was just furious at him because he didn't turn up to events so I, I'm not saying that's a constructive way to behave but anger in an emotional business like sport 
I think sometimes channels people's thinking, creates conflict, creates a spark and creates something better. And yet when we talked about this, um, we're, we're preparing uh, for the Marathon Bet podcast, you think that anger is as much likely to corrode and devour the yeah. person rather than the person you're being angry with. Well, I think anger is like drinking poison and wanting somebody else to suffer. You know, that's what I think it is because it erodes you. Being frustrated and having the courage of your convictions to say it you know, is one thing. But being an angry person per se and being angry, if it's justifiable, then fine. If it's angry because you didn't get something that you thought you were entitled to and you don't like the world because you think you should get something better, then I think that's more about your character. I guess we'll end this part of the show by asking what makes you angry about the game today. But we'll have to just pick one or two things, otherwise yeah. we'll be here all day. What about yourself? I look at things like we've touched upon on this show and the incompetence and inadequacies and the opportunities that people within the confines of the game get. And I talk at an administration level that they wouldn't get in other sectors. I look at some of the CEOs in football and I sit there with, with a bemused circumstance about the competence levels. I look at the operators within football league and look at the level of competence as being shown in the way that there's problems are being solved. And I think, you know, they've no right to be in these jobs. But the biggest anger I get is about players' entitlement and the crap that you have to listen to about a player's short career and how much it's this and how much it's that and the myths and nonsense and the empress new clothes that football likes to keep itself amongst. Football is a business like everything else and people are entitled to perform and they're entitled to be called out and they shouldn't be put in an environment when they're protected from actually having the consequences of their behaviour being brought to the fore. And we're talking about there's no parallel universe. This enrages me when I'm looking at Gareth Bell and I'm thinking, are we even talking and allowing it to come off our tongues? This boy's going to get a million pounds a week. The world's gone to in a worse football league to the, perform the world's a... gone to hell in a handcart in, in my view in that respect coming up we're going to be picking our sinners of the week to go into our sin bin but first is our charity bet now last season thanks to the generosity of marathon bet Simon and I were asked to pick three winners from anywhere in football each weekend and the winnings that we got would lead to uh, fantastic donations for charities. I have to say we did terribly at it, but uh, Marathon Bet blessed them and said, all right, we'll still give the money to the charity. So over £500 went, in my case, St Joseph's Hospice in Hackney, in Simon's case, to the very good cause of prostate cancer. So we're going to pick again. We're going to try and do better this season. We're going to pick uh, three games each. And Dan from Marathon Bet, who's here with us, will give us the odds on those and uh, probably try and steer us to a more successful conclusion than last season. Welcome, Dan. Hello, Danny. Good, good to have you. you along. Simon, do you want to start with uh, your three games? I think the Norwich versus Chelsea game is going to heap more misery on Frank Lampard, so I'm going to plump see for a Norwich win. I think Arsenal are going to come undone at Liverpool. I don't think there's much of a challenge on that one. And I've picked a 50-50 game, but I'm going to go down on the sides of West Ham United when they play away to Watford and you know compound Watford's miserable start to the season. Yeah, interesting. I do agree with your first two. Uh, even the third one, you look at Watford's performances. I think they've let in 10 goals in the last three games, two in the Premiership this year, and obviously the FA Off Cup the final. Of a bad finish to the season uh, last year. Exactly. Yeah. So they are struggling, so they do need to try and get a win. So you've gone for Norwich to beat Chelsea, Liverpool to beat Arsenal, and West Ham away to Watford. OK, listen, thank you very much for those. In my case, 
Uh, Simon won't like this, but there's a big derby on the south coast. And I think Southampton have just another team, a bit like Watford, had a terribly jittery start. And I think these things are very hard to come out of. And Brighton, uh, some of their new players have made a decent beginning to their careers there with the Seagulls. I've gone for Brighton to beat Southampton in that game. Then I'm going against what I normally do. Never bet on the away teams in football, but two of them I think have got a real chance. Sheffield United will take on Leicester in Sheffield. I think Leicester City are a really good team. They should have won at Chelsea. I'm going to go for Leicester to win at Sheffield United. And down in the leagues, Cardiff, of course, had an awful result this weekend. Beat 3-0. Looked like they were going to beat 6-0. I'm sure that uh, anger will have been expressed in their dressing room. And they will go to Blackburn, a transformed team under Neil Warnock. I'm going for Cardiff to win in Blackburn. Perfect, yeah. Brighton 6-4 at home to beat Southampton. I think, obviously, being a Brighton fan myself, it's been a very positive start to I'll the try season. And, I try and keep him with the governors. Don't worry about that. <laughs> so, Brighton 6-4 at home to beat Southampton. Leicester, who come off a very positive display of the weekend against Chelsea, 57-50. And Cardiff, who've only had one win since they've gone down from the Premiership, 179-100. to So, your treble is Brighton, Southampton, Leicester to beat Sheffield United and Cardiff to win against Blackburn. And I reckon all six of those are going to come right. It's going to be the start of a glorious campaign. Let's hope so. One little thing that we like to do at the end of each of these podcasts as we go through the seven deadly sins and beyond to the sins that you want to talk about is each week we'll take somebody who's committing the sin that we've been discussing, in this case, anger. I'll start happily with someone to put in the sin bin. And at the end of the series, we'll have built up a team of top-class sinners. We talk about anger this week. I think Jose Mourinho is the angriest man in football now in the world. I know he goes on the television now and he speaks beautifully and he's always got a two grand shirt on and all the rest of it. You'd know. Can you get a two grand shirt? Can do. Oh, right. He's, probably, he's got a two grand shirt on. But underneath, I think he is seething because each job he's done in the last five or six years since the calamity at Chelsea has shown him that the game is moving further and further away from him. He's still a good manager. I, I get that. But the way that Pochettino, Klopp, Guardiola look after their players, the man management skills that they've displayed show that the game is changing and he was the greatest manager in the world and now he, he, despite all the soft words and the jokes in five languages I believe he's about to explode there's a volcano inside that man he's my angry sinner of the week who's yours? I think mine's quite a controversial one it's going to be a double-sided pick it's going to be Newcastle fans and Newcastle owner ah. for different reasons I think Mike Ashley has every right to be angry about certain perspectives he bought a football club that he didn't love and didn't support. He bought it for reasons that are his own reasons, and every football club owner buys it for their own reasons. 90% of them not being supporters of the club. If people think that there wasn't a game plan behind Man City owning or Sheikh Mansour buying it for the soft influence of Middle Eastern money and the promotion of certain brands, then they're deluded. Mike Ashley spent three or four hundred million pounds of his own money and received nothing but vitriol and contempt. Some of it owned. So if I'm him, I'm sat there feeling quite frustrated and angry with this and not angry with the people that keep popping up trying to nick the club off him for two and six. If I'm a Newcastle fans, in this modern age of super owners that are prepared to break the bank and have the means to do it, I think they have an element of being incredibly angry about and entitled about the way their club is going because it does need to kick on. Benitez was an inspirational appointment. Benitez did bring a level of achievement there. It does make me angry that Benitez got the identity of being able to walk on water because Rafa Benitez has always been about Rafa Benitez and anyone that really knows football and knows Rafa Benitez will also say that. So I think those two 
are going into the same bin as the one that you just put Jose Mourinho in, but for different reasons inside the same club. So already, if you like, our sort of selection box of sinners is getting nice and full. You've got yeah. Jose Mourinho, you've got Mike Ashley, and you've got 52,000 Newcastle, Newcastle fans. <laughs> So that's that. Thank you for listening to the first of a new series of the Marathon Bet podcast with me, Danny Kelly, and him, Simon Jordan. Absolutely loved it, and we're really looking forward to getting stuck into next week's ones as well. Absolutely. Nothing like venting your spleen. We've got six more deadly scenes in the next six episodes, or certainly the next nine episodes. Marathon Bet. Better odds mean bigger winnings. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org.